0: Right, open your Bibles this morning with me to Joel chapter two, Joel chapter two. And um, we had you turn in there. Have you ever been out in a store, been out in a community or, you know, you're just out and about somewhere doing your thing and all of a sudden you um, you see a child that's not behaving well, there, and maybe a couple of them or a few, and, and they're by themselves and you're, you're watching them misbehave and you're seeing the, like the train wreck's about to happen, you know, and, and you wanna step in and then you have that thought, you're like, well, those aren't my kids. I don't know who these kids are. I don't know where they're from, but, but you're watching that train wreck. It's about to happen and you see it and it's, it's going on. And what's the thought that comes in your head? Where, where I heard somebody say it. Where is that kid's parents? right where's their parents at and and you have that thought and you see it happen and you're like and and you're like it's sometimes if you're like me you're, you start to look around you're like all right i know they're here somewhere where where's the parents at i'm just i'm not seeing them i know they're here they've got to be around somewhere and you're looking around you're scanning and and you expect at any moment mom or dad or both they're going to swoop in they're going to take care of the situation and correct their children but that thought that hits your head is, where is their parents? When we look at this passage today, the question that is posed from the world to God's people is, where is their God? Where is their God? And that's as, as Judah is experiencing really at, on the brink of absolute annihilation at this point in, in Joel, the people around are going to begin to wonder, where's their God at? Because for for them in this culture, in this, this ancient Near East culture, the national identity was wrapped up in the religious identity. So your security and prosperity as a nation was directly tied to the strength and might and ability of your God to protect and provide for you. Now, that may be a little bit disassociative for us today. We may not necessarily look at a national identity with a religious identity, but it's extremely comparative to the church. Have you ever driven by and and seen a a church with its doors closed? It was obvious there'd not been a a church. Of course, we know the church is the people, not the building, but still, we, we, we see a church building, we think of it as a church. And you drive by and you see a church and you think, Man, what happened? Now we think of that as a Christian, right? You think, man, what happened to that church? Not too long ago, one of the deacons of the church, he sent me a picture uh, somewhere I don't know, somewhere in the area here uh, of an old church that was um, the, the building had long it had evidently been long closed. I mean, there was greenery growing up. It was about to consume the whole what was left of the building. And, um, you know, he, he sent that to me and he said something about the, the only people that meet here now is, a, I think, a, a a bike biker club that meets in the, one, one morning a week, they meet in the parking lot, not for church. They just meet, that's their gathering spot, then they go out for their ride. And uh, he said, that's about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of sad. And w- for us as Christians, we look at that and we're like, well, church buildings, they come and go. But hold on a second now and, and bear with me because, Think about what, what does the world think of when they see that? Do you ever stop and think for a second? Maybe the world looks at the closed doors of a church and points and says, where's their God? Where, where is their God that they profess such strong faith in? Where is their God that they trust in so much? Where, where is their God that he would allow that building or that church in their mind, to close, to be done with. And so church, when we look at this passage today and we see the call to repentance and the call to turn to God and the call to cry out to him for the sake of God restoring his people, it's a very clear reminder to us today that if we aren't serious about our faith and our walk with Christ if we aren't serious about the church in America, not just barely making it along, but thriving for the sake of God, let's remember that the world is watching. All that we do and all that we are is not about us. It's not about us thriving or surviving or, 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 or prospering. It's about the reputation of God on this earth and how we represent him in this world that is what we're called to and in the face of a of a national church not not nationally sponsored by the government but just the national church the church of america in the face of the Church of America experiencing decline like it has not in the history of our nation. In fact, you could even go so far, it potentially has not in the history of the arrival of Ameri- or Europeans on this continent. In the face of that, it's time to dig in and fight. It's time to get to it, church, because the world around us is watching They're wagging their fingers in our face and saying, where is your God? Where is your God? So let's read this morning, Joel chapter two, beginning in verse 12, where we left off last week. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You see, even if God leaves a blessing behind him, it is not for our benefit, but it is for the offering and sacrifice to be made back for him. You see, church, even if God were to step in and intervene as we so, so passionately desire and pray for him to do so, it's not for our glory and the the sake of our reputation and the, the raising of us, it's for his glory, for his honor, For his reputation, it's for him. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, "Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, why should they among the people say, "Where is their God, where is their God? And that's the question we pose this morning. In fact, before we leave here today, let us turn the question upon ourselves. Where is our God? And I believe he has not left us, but rather it is us who have wandered astray from him. We haven't seen God leave us in the dust Rather, by our actions and by our inactions, we have strayed away from our God. It's important to notice in this passage, it's not an individual call to turn and repent and follow God, but rather this is a corporate collective call of God's people to turn and to follow him. This is the, the, the body of Of In in this passage, the body of the entire nation of Judah called out, all of them. And and really, you have to ask yourselves, does this mean that everybody was, was guilty? Well, as a nation, yes. But certainly there were righteous people left in the nation. Certainly there were people that were pursuing God and there was a remnant that was as best as possible holy before him, seeking him. But yet collectively, they had a need and a desire to turn and follow God. They needed the desire. And so Joel calls them all out And it's this this corporate call. But I want you to understand the corporate call, the collective call of God's people to turn and follow him was not to save their own necks, to save their own skins. The purpose of this, this, this calling them out was so that the world could not look on and point their fingers and say, where is their God? You see, they weren't called to repent so that their prosperity could be restored. They were called to repent so that the world could see that God is true and living and just and that he saves his people. It wasn't a call so that we can save ourselves. Let me pause from the message for a second and say this. If our purpose in turning and following God is just so that we can restore what we think is right for our country, what we think is right for our, our state, for our church, just so that we can restore the prosperity, you may as well not even call out to him. If, if, our, if our hearts desire is just simply, well, you know, my 401k is hurting. So we need to turn back to God. My, my job, my career is suffering because the economy's down, so we need to turn back to God. Things aren't looking so good, so we need to turn back. If, that, if, that's, your, if that's your purpose, you miss the point. Of the whole, the whole book of Joel, it, it's centered not on the people's prosperity. Sure, God hit them where it hurts. He hit them in the pocketbook. But the purpose of doing that was for God's reputation. Where is their God? so church, I would say, listen, if, if what we're fighting for is some sort of an American dream, an American value, an American anything, then we may as well lock the doors and walk away. What we're fighting for is the reputation of Jesus Christ on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we fight for and that's what we need to repent too. If there's a great crime in our country of which we need to repent, it's the fact that the church has intermingled a national identity with a spiritual identity and we are suffering the repercussions of it. So, we turn to God, not for us, but for him. We return to him because that's where we need to be. We seek him, we pursue him with all that we have. Notice number one, church, I wanna point out, we need to turn to God with all of your heart, with all of your heart. I, I, I am amazed at the, the decline of work ethic in the world. Anybody else feel that hurt? Now, if you're a business owner, you certainly do. You're like, listen, I get it. If you manage people or you oversee people in your job, you're like, yeah, the the work ethic has declined. It's rough, right? If this bothers us on a physical level, a a worldly or earthly level, seeing work ethic just kind of, I mean, it's in the tank, right? If this bothers us, imagine, what God thinks of his people who pursue him half-heartedly, right? And I'm not even sure at times, listen, I'm not even sure we could say it's half-heartedly anymore. Somebody do the math. What's one-seventh heartedly? Because we like to not even show up just but one day a week to, to pursue God. And then we're, we're feeling good about that. You say, whoa, preacher, you're hitting hard today. This passage is not very friendly, is it? It hurts. It hurts it cuts deep because it's cutting at a problem in our lives that needs to be renewed. If, if it bothers you to see people work or labor half-heartedly, then please for a second, imagine how difficult and painful it is to see, for God to see his people pursue him half-heartedly. In, in this passage, it's that we need to rend our hearts and not our garments. The explanation of that is very clear and very simple. In the Old Testament days, in the ancient world, the sign of mourning was that you would tear your outer garment in half, okay? Now, if this sounds like a pretty extreme thing, it's much more than you can imagine because clothing in those days was really so highly valued and so hard to come by that in a lot of sense, it was used as a form of currency, Perhaps we could even exaggerate and go this far and say, maybe we need to uh, tear our pocketbook to show our sign of mourning right? Tear our dollar bills in half. So they would tear their garments as a sign of mourning. And then they would sprinkle the ashes over their head. This was a sign that they were upset or that they were mourning over something. And God says, that's not good enough. You need to tear, you need to rend your heart for him. God specializes in taking the old and the broken and making it new. But the problem is so much of us are not willing to have it completely and totally broken before him. And because of that, we stand in the way of God making something new out of us. We need to rend our heart, break our heart and weep as he says before the altar because that's when we're at a place where God can most come in and affect change in our lives. He says this, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, brand your heart and not your garments. Tear it, up, tear it to pieces. Because it's then and only then that the compassionate and gracious and loving, kind God can come in with all the gentleness of a creator God who loves his, his, his people, his creation. And he can nurture us back to the health, back to the wholeness, back to the perfection that he wants us to be. But first, it's gotta be broken down. Last summer, we went on that mission trip to Honduras. We had the privilege of going with a a group from Michigan uh, led by uh, a young man uh, named Joshua Vineyard. A lot of you may know him. He grew up in the area here. um, And uh, I know he's got a lot of, Friend connections and family connections here in the church, and uh, Josh had a, a a group of college age young men with him, and um, he he gave these guys a real hard time. I mean, he really he he would he would pick at them and 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 just you know kind of uh, he gave them a hard time all week long, and he had this saying: got to got to tear them down before you can build them back up. Got to tear them down before you can build them back up. What a great picture of where we need to be to prepare for God to build us back up. Turn to God with all of your heart, everything you have, and return to him. And notice secondly, this morning, you gotta depend upon the unchangeable character of God, the unchangeable character of God. You see, when they returned to God, they were hoping that God would be compassionate and gracious and merciful toward them that they were hoping in fact the verse even gives that question that it tosses up verse 14 who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God who knows whether he will not turn and relent Who knows? And they they, they put this out there. And what happens is when you return to God, you are throwing yourself at his mercy and hoping that he will prove to himself merciful and gracious towards you. You are depending on what we know of the unchangeable character of God Almighty. When we repent and turn to God, we literally throw ourselves at his mercy. God, I hope that you will forgive me for I have fallen one more time. I have betrayed you one more time. I hope that you will continue to be the God that you always have been and always will be. And it is us completely giving ourselves to him and and prostrating ourselves before him and hoping that he will not change. That comes from promises in scripture about what we call his immutability, his unchangeableness. You see, because God, if he were merciful in the past, he will be merciful in the future. Where he has shown judgment, he will continue to show judgment. Where he has shown love, he will continue to show love. And the truth of the matter is this. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we have an opportunity to turn and follow him and repent. And God will be merciful. Scripture is filled with proof of of what we call his immutability. Look with me for a few minutes across some scripture passages. The first one, Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27 says this, even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Because God never changes, He never wears out like a garment, He never fades out like everything in this world. He is perfect and unchanging and unending. Malachi 3 6 says this For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I the Lord he says, do not change. James 1:17 Every good thing uh, uh, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so, if God's character is unchangeable, if God himself does not change, then what we see in Joel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, becomes a guarantee, a promise of the nature of God. So, what did Joel say about the character of God? What did Joel say about who he is? He gives us this beautiful picture that 25 plus hundred years ago was true about God and today is true about God. Verse 13, he says, rend your heart, not your garments, now return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Five beautiful descriptors of the character and nature of God. They're a parallel to so many other passages that would give uh, three, four, or even all five of these uh, descriptions of God and, and how and who he is and how he relates to the world. One passage in particular that comes to mind is Exodus chapter 34. When, when Moses is going back up to the mount uh, to, to get the second giving of the 10 commandments, remember the first set, he comes down, he sees the sin of the people, he, he destroys them and throws them down. And so he had to go back up to Mount Sinai. He's getting the, the, the 10 commandments re-given again. And this is that time where God passed by him at Moses' request and revealed himself to Moses. He showed him the, the backside of his glory because he couldn't even bear as a a mortal human being to experience the fullness of God's presence and glory revealed to him. And so in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, it says this, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so here in Joel, we get a parallel demonstrating that God's, Character is unchanging what it was for Moses and then what it was in the time of Joel and now what it is in our time. It is unchanging demonstration of the love, compassion, mercy, grace of God. And yet he will still punish evil. And so in this passage, five words given to us that show us the unchanging uh, character of God. The first one is this, it's gracious. In fact, if you will, you might even uh, box or, or circle gracious and compassionate together because those two concepts are almost married together. So much of their definition overlaps and so many times throughout scripture, they are used together gracious and compassionate. Gracious, though, first of all, it's that which is pertaining to be merciful to the needy and repentant. Merciful to the needy and repentant. And then that compassion or that compassionate, it's pertaining to showing favor and not punishment, as is often deserved, implying a forgiving relationship you might say it this way. The gracious is just being willing to allow the people into your presence to hear their plight, to hear their plea, to listen to them repent. It's the, it's the ears to hear the people. And then compassion is that which acts upon that. The relationship between the two, gracious and compassionate can be thought of in that very way. Gracious is listening to the cry of his debtor's and compassionate is to show mercy where punishment is deserved. Oftentimes we will say it today, grace and mercy, will put it those two ways together. But that gracious and that compassionate, it's listening to the debtors who, to be quite frankly, he doesn't even have to listen to. Just having the ear of God is a gift to us We do not even deserve that he would listen to us. And then compassionate to act upon that and show us favor that is undeserved. The third word, the third description of God here is slow to anger. Aren't you glad church today that we can look at God and say, thank you God for being slow to anger. If God were not slow to anger, by the way, we would not even exist. For the fact of God's slowness to anger means that he did not immediately annihilate humankind upon the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter three. Because at that very moment, humanity deserved to be punished and ceased to exist. At the very moment, of your first sin and mine, we deserve to be completely annihilated and destroyed, to cast out into the darkness and the pit and the everlasting damnation. But thanks be to God that he is slow to anger. This attribute has to do with the patience of God as a judge to wait to hand down the judgment. We talked last week about the fact that the day of the Lord is the central theme of the the book of Joel, when he will come in and separate the good from the evil, the righteous from the unrighteous. And let me tell you, it is by the grace of God that he has been slow to anger and has not brought down his judgment upon us yet because we are so deserving of it. So when we look to a God in heaven who is merciful and gracious to be slow to anger, who is patient towards us, thank you, God, for that. The fourth attribute we see is that loving kindness, and not just loving kindness, but I love this, abounding in loving kindness. That word abounding simply means much more. It's an overflow I'm glad today, church, that God is loving, kind towards us, but that he is abounding in loving kindness towards us. I'm glad today that God doesn't just love us, but he loves us much more than we can imagine. I'm glad today that the kindness of God stretches towards us in such a way that it overflows, it pours out, it spews into our lives like none other. The core idea, listen to this from the Lexham uh, definition. The core idea of this term relates to loyalty within a relationship. In relation to the concept of love, it denotes God's faithfulness to his people. Think about that for a second. It's, it's not our loving kindness, it's his loving kindness. Because if it was our loving kindness, it wouldn't be abounding in loving kindness. We would say we were much lacking in loving kindness because we were not super faithful in our side of the relationship with him. We we were not super good in our side of the relationship with God to be called abounding in loving kindness. I'm not even sure we could even use the word loving kindness to as as it meet, as it is in the Old Testament. I'm not even sure we could use that word to describe our type of love for God. We hope that it gets there. We try for it to get there. We we pursue God in a way that would honor His loving kindness to us. But that loving kindness word is so deep and so rich and so fool that I don't even know that you can describe our side of the relationship in terms anywhere near that concept. The closest thing we might have in the New Testament to this word would be that agape love that you've heard of along with the grace of God, okay? And pairing those two concepts together. That's the closest thing we have. Here's what it is. It is a loyalty to us, his people, his creation, those whom he loved that knows no bounds. Imagine why God would have that kind of a loyalty to us. We are, we are so unworthy. We are so wicked. We are so, so beyond help. I'm reminded of Prophet was given the the great pleasure, but yet burden of representing God's relationship with Israel by being commanded by God to go take his wife, Hosea, go take his wife Gomer out of the 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 harlotry, and, and I think I think why you know. Why would God continue to love us? And yet he does. And I think about that prophet having to go love his wife that way. And he did and he continued to pursue her and he continued to love her at the command of God and and, and he, he, he just did everything for her. That's the kind of love that God has for us. It knows no limits you, if you dive into this word loving kindness and you really seek to understand it and 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 by the, the church the the best thing is is probably the this is probably the word that has an all encompassing thought process here of the salvation of god that he provides for us and so in in many ways, you could you could consider this the the motivating word behind all of redemption, salvation for, for us for our sin, and, and so to begin to understand this word, I don't think we can even comprehend the beauty here, the character of God that is encapsulated in this this loving kindness. But for Joel to then add an adjective upon that makes no human sense but that's just who God is there is no limit to his loving kindness for us I want you to remember that and then in relation to the attribute right before it slow to anger and then right behind it relenting of evil Relenting of evil. I'm so glad that God relented of the evil that I was due for my wickedness, my sin, my transgression in his face. I'm so glad that he relented of that evil and acted upon his Abundance of loving kindness. Depend, church, on the character of God. By the way, this character of God is what we're supposed to be demonstrating into the world. We should treat one another this way first, right? Let's be slow to anger with one another. Let's relent of the evil towards one another and abound in loving kindness towards one another. And then, and then project that into the world. And notice number three, we need to gather the faithful congregation. once again, we see that trumpet blown. We talked about the significance of that trumpet as both a religious and a, a, a wartime call to the people. Below a trumpet in Zion, he says in verse 16, uh, 15, consecrate." a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Gather the faithful congregation. i right, I'm gonna hit it hard here, church. I understand, we got a lot of people on vacation. I get that, okay, I, you know. A- aside from that, there are people There are Christians, there are faithful, supposedly faithful of the congregation that need to be gathered here that we miss. They're supposed to be part of this church or other churches in our area. It's time to gather the congregation together. It's time to go out and get the people, bring in the flock, right? It's time, let's, let's let's go blow the trumpet. Let's go proclaim to the people, gather the congregation, bring them in, it's hard, it's hard to assemble the troops for battle if the troops don't assemble for battle. It's hard to go march against the face of pure evil in this world if the troops don't show up, right? We're, we're looking at, I don't, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to form words around the wickedness, the atrocities that were committed a week ago yesterday over in Israel. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. I don't normally condone watching wickedness, right? I think when it comes to your Hollywood and your sensational and all that stuff, listen, you, you need to be careful about uh, pumping wickedness into your mind. But listen, if you haven't seen it, you need to go watch some of the atrocities that were proudly and publicly and globally proclaimed over video by the perpetrators, You need to go watch it. It will sicken your stomach. It will will eat away at your soul to watch the crimes. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for the Israel Defense Forces to prepare, to, to respond to the attacks here if half of the IDF got called up and they said, hey, uh, got a party this weekend, I got to hit. I can't make it. If, if half of the IDF said, well, I'm gonna spend, uh, I, I, I got to go to my regular job, I can't, I can't go fight. Uh, I, I got to, hey, I'm, I'm on the brink for a good promotion, I need to really invest myself in that right now. Give me two years and then when the time is in my life is right, I'll, I'll help. Church, we're we're not issuing a call for something good and fun. We're issuing a battle cry. It's time to gather the congregation. This trumpet was, was not joyful party music. This trumpet was a call for a religious spiritual warfare. We're issuing a battle cry, and it's time that the army of the Lord marched up if If Israel's facing a difficult battle right now, how much more are we who wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places? How much much greater is the battle that we face? Because we are fighting spiritual depravity and wickedness, and his name is Satan, Lucifer, the prince of this world. That wicked serpent. It's time to issue the battle cry and stop making excuses. Every single one of us knows somebody in this church that should be here right now. We need to call them up and say, listen, put your differences aside. Put your problems aside. I get it. We don't agree on, on the, the format of the worship service. We don't agree on the type of community groups or Sunday school classes we have. We don't agree on, on, on this issue in our church or we don't agree on, on all this stuff. We need to put the differences aside and gather the congregation because now is the time to fight for the Lord our God. Can I get a witness, church? Can I get your help, church? Are you ready to call up the congregation and gather the people so that we have a fighting chance? Because we're staring in the face of perfect, pure, wicked evil. And it's time to fight. We will get our rest someday. Go read the book of Hebrews, it's a, a huge encouragement. Because one day he will say, come, enter into my rest. But today is a day to fight for what we believe in. And to storm against the enemy. I am tired of yielding battleground to the enemy. It's time to push forward. Gather the congregation, gather the faithful people, what are we to gather them to? We're to gather them to repentance, which begins with the heart. It then overflows to the actions. We're to gather them to fasting. You say, what is is fasting, pastor? It's just giving up a meal, giving up food. No, it is demonstrating to God that, your life is more sustained in his hands than it is in your belly. It is demonstrating to God that you recognize him as more vitally important than that which sustains life on this earth. Fasting before him, it's demonstrating to him that what you come before him to pray or repent over is more important than your next meal. It's more important than what you care about. Weeping. When was the last time we truly wept before the Lord over our sin and his grace? When was the last time we were truly broken before him? It burdens me. Church, it burdens me because I know that what God seeks is a broken and a contrite heart. And I'm afraid that we are too willing to break our hearts ourselves. And so he's gonna have to come in and do it for us. And that is a painful spot to be at. Mourning. Have things gotten bad enough yet, church, that we would mourn over the lostness and depravity of our world? Has it gotten that bad yet that we would truly grieve and mourn the lostness, the sin, the wickedness in our world? Because if it hasn't yet, then we're not there yet. Truly mourning what we have lost, what God has lost, what his reputation has suffered. Are we truly mourning the lost in this world that die every day without hope? This is why we have Who's Your One to put constantly in front of our face the absolute tragedy that will happen if our lost loved ones and friends die in this life without repentance. And then finally, sanctification. Sanctification is God setting us apart from the wickedness and worldliness that we have all around us and setting us to a life of holiness and purity in him. Why do we suffer? Why does Christianity suffer in our world? It's because we have allowed so much worldliness to encroach upon our sanctification that we really shouldn't even call it sanctification anymore. Perhaps, Some of the holiness movements have it much better than us because at least they're acknowledging their sin and wickedness where we like to separate our wickedness from our holiness and think that the two can exist side by side in our lives when they cannot. You are either being set apart from this world to godliness or you're not. There can be no middle ground. And then notice, we gather the congregation. We depend upon the character, the unchanging character of God. We turn and follow God with all of our hearts. And then finally, we must intercede on behalf of others. That final verse in this paragraph that we studied this morning, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not, minice, uh, do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Intercede on behalf of others. And appeal to God. Stand in the gap, stand in between a, a, a wicked world and a righteous and holy God and appeal on behalf. When we gather the congregation, those who don't come, we must intercede on their behalf. We must cry out to God that he would spare them and hope that he does. Once again, I I think we ought to revisit that story of God and Moses there on Mount Sinai in the second giving of the the 10 commandments on the stone tablets, the day that God revealed That backside of his holiness to Moses. And and looking at at that uh, passage, we see in a few verses after what I read earlier, the the reaction that Moses had to the proclamation of God's character. What how did Moses respond? How did he react? What What was his response? When God showed him his character in Exodus 34, verse eight, nine, it says this, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He worshiped before God. And here was his proclamation. If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Moses appealed to God and begged God. He prostrated himself before God and interceded on behalf of the people. Remember, think about this passage. Why was Moses even up on Sinai this day? It was to get the 10 commandments re-given because Moses had broken him. And why had Moses broken him? Because he'd gone down, he'd sin, seen that, that, that grievous idolatry of God's people and he's thinking to himself, I didn't even gone that long. We've only been a few weeks outside of seeing God move in a miraculous way. Of all the points in time in history, arguably the time when God performed some of the greatest miracles outside of the resurrection of Christ, some of the greatest miracles in some of the shortest period of time was the exodus. You think about those plagues and what they were and how great it was. And arguably one of the greatest times of, of God's miraculous Movement in history and just a few weeks removed and the people are already worshiping the golden calf and they're committing this, this just terrible idolatry and wickedness and Moses gets back up on the mountain. By the way, God, he, this is the second time he interceded on behalf of him because God was going to go destroy the people and rebuild the nation through Moses' line and he stood in between. He said, no God, these are your people. He interceded on behalf of them and that ultimately is a picture of Jesus Christ interceding on Mount Calvary before God on behalf of us. And in this passage, there's a significance, I believe, when it says, you priests, you ministers, that's us. We are now the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the high priest. We are the ministers of the most high God and we are to intercede between the porch and the altar. It's the dividing line between the holy place where God's presence would be in the temple and what was outside of the temple grounds, the congregation of the Lord. It's the meeting place, very literally, between man and God in the Old Testament. And we now are in that mediator spot, interceding on behalf of this world. This is our call. This picture shows Jesus Christ on that cross for our sins, demonstrating God's relenting of evil demonstrating God's slowness to anger, his graciousness and compassionate nature, abounding in loving kindness. And that's what he did for you and for me. And he opens his arms and he says to all who will listen, turn and follow me, repent of your evil, turn to Christ and be forgiven of your sins. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. It's time, church, to take seriously our call and our mission. May we be a people so holy after the heart of God that no one could ever look around and say, Where is their God? May we be that kind of people. And as we intercede on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world, may he use us to reach more souls. If you're sitting here today God's pricked at your heart. You know how this works. The altar's open. This is a place to come and to do business with God. This is a place to come and, and to bow before him. Maybe you've got something to repent of yourself. Maybe you just need to rest and, and refresh in the loving kindness of God, the, the character of God. Or maybe you need to come intercede on behalf of somebody else. Whatever the case may be, workers are up at the front. They're waiting for you to pray with you, to pray over you. They're working to counsel and waiting to counsel and to talk with you if you need someone to talk with. During this time of invitation, you come. Don't hesitate a moment. Perhaps you're sitting here today. And you recognize in your life that you are very much just a heartbeat away from an eternity of punishment and judgment. Rightly, you should be scared to death. But there's a way out. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never given your life to Christ. You've never thrown yourself at the mercy of God and admitted that you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't do enough good to buy your way out of hell. You can't do enough good to buy your way into the good graces of God. And you need to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness. This altar too is open for you. You just come on down. Grab me by the hand and say, pastor, I need to be saved. If you're able, would you stand with me? eyes closed, we pray together. God, we just come to you today seeking you. May we be everything that you hope and expect us to be. May we be a people that please you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's time for the invitation. It's a time where God works in our hearts. It's just a time where we allow him to move in us. It's a time where we do business with him. We'll sing together. Would you listen to the voice of God this morning?